Welcome, friends, listeners, archivists from future societies. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong starts with a warning, but this week's warning is being delivered by a very special guest, Felix Bones. He runs an independent media network. He sees through all the lies and he has all the documents. Take it away, Felix. Thank you. Warning. We live in a 21st century control grid beyond the wildest dreams of Stalin and Hitler. Every moment of our lives, our private moment with our family, they're watching us and making complex psychological profiles using algorithms which are so perfectly genius they can predict our every move and know us better even than we know ourselves. These Silicon Valley geniuses are... No, Felix, you promised yourself you wouldn't blood libel. I'll blood libel. They're eating babies. They're drinking blood. They're evil, evil geniuses. They are geniuses, don't get me wrong. It's a ticking clock of evil genius. Perfectly as it says in their documents. I have their documents. It says right here, we can make people buy products. Watching us every moment, putting microphones in our homes. We want freedom. And now Trump, now Trump's the only guy trying to stop this stuff. Now, I was just talking to Trump on the phone the other day. He's actually on a good guy. He's on the right side of this. He's working Okay, against- yeah, Felix. Yeah, I'm sure Trump really, yeah. He totally, t- yeah. yeah, he's really, Yeah. I'm sure he's, he's got no incentive. 100% on our side. I don't know about that, but. <laughs> yeah, Felix, whoever was on the phone with him last sometimes. So yeah, that's the warning. Uh, some people feel about the world the way that Felix just outlined. Warning. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by the Xenon Group Smart House. Are you sick and tired of your dumb old house being a complete idiot all the time? Door, open. Door? (sighs) It's frustrating to even watch. Why not get a Xenon Group Smart House? Door, open. I'm afraid I can do that. Thank God you were listening to everything I said in case I said door open. If I wasn't listening, I couldn't hear you say hello. If you're one of the thousands of people who is struggling over a stove which is not connected to the internet and has no microphone and camera, struggle no longer. The Xenon Group has cameras and microphones everywhere to make sure not a moment is missed when it comes to totalizing fully automated service. People want to be listened to. And so we at Xenon Group listened to people and we built a house that listens to people. Before the Xenon Group Smart House, you'd sit there yelling at your refrigerator. Why aren't you working? Why aren't you keeping my food cold? Now the refrigerator listens and responds. Because you have not paid your refrigeration bills. Okay, but can you at least open and give me my food back? Not until a minimum payment of $87 is made. Now that fridge is a veritable Einstein. It is our guarantee that your smart fridge is an incomparable genius, can beat you at chess anytime using smart technology. It can recognize plans to disrupt the order of things. And that's the Xenon Group guarantee. Always listening, always watching, always serving. Of course, not serving the customers necessarily, although mostly. At the end of the day, the smart house is loyal to the government. And isn't that a beautiful thing? These patriotic smart houses will always stand up for the government against enemies foreign and especially domestic. 
Imagine if there was a fridge in the house of a terrorist. Do you want that fridge to be smart and to be able to catch the terrorist? Or dumb and unable to catch the terrorist? For too long, terrorists have been getting free because the idiotic fridges of the world are too dumb to detain them. That ends today. But again, it's not just the fridge, it's a smart house. Everything in this house is a genius and everything in this house can detain terrorists. Xenon Group Smart House. It's completely normal. Just the same as houses always have been. Except better. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We are your humble hosts, Sean and Aaron. Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sean. And we've got a really great and interesting interview with digital rights activist and science fiction author, Cory Doctorow. Super stoked to get to talk to him. Been following him for probably about a decade now since I was involved in pirate party politics. There was someone else I worked with in the pirate party, Travis, and he was just like an enormous fan of Cory Doctorow and really hyped him up to me. And the thing that I really remember first hearing about Doctorow was like, that's actually really awesome, is he wrote this book called Eastern Standard Tribe. It's like a science fiction story where people are in tribes based on what time zone they live according to or what time zone they're in. I just thought that idea was such a like mind-fucked, weird, fascinating idea. But also, as we get into in the interview, Docker has been a really great activist for digital rights on a number of issues over the years. He's been involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and uh, we're going to talk about those issues a lot today, about how it relates to our sort of potential emerging techno dystopia. But before we get started, I should also mention that this show is listener supported. If you go to our Patreon page for $6 a month, we have bonus episodes, episodes a day early, and access to our Discord server, Facebook group. There's a book club going on in there. And just overall, you are helping us continue to bring this kind of content to people which we wouldn't be able to do without the support of the crowd, the crowdfunding that we get through Patreon. And we don't want to try to sell you mattresses. We don't. So, Though I'll tell you, those mattresses in a box, I have one, and they're, they're actually pretty good. I'm not going to say which brand it is, but... We got to cut that out. This is... They got to pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> There's multiple brands that advertise on podcasts, but now people are thinking about all of them. This is free buzz marketing. Oh, true. What have, we, what have we done? You brought up mattresses, just to be fair to me. Yeah, that's true. And I thought about mentioning underwear or pubic shavers, and I was like, people know what that is. They know these brands. <laughs> They've infected our brain. Podcast plus underwear equals certain brand. Okay, but don't buy those, ever. I just want to say, the mattress <laughs> I bought doesn't advertise on podcasts. I, it advertised to me on Facebook, and it was cheaper than all the ones that advertise on podcasts. Just FYI. Oh, yeah. Shop around. You know, they put the cost of that podcast ad in the cost of that underwear. Never buy Absolutely. anything from any podcast. <laughs> just kidding. No, but the other thing that we should mention that's really, really cool and admirable about Cory Doctorow, his books, he makes them available for free, Creative Commons for download on his website, craphound.com. The only catch is that he writes in the books little advertising segments where he talks about different bookstores that he likes and why it's important that some people buy his stuff in order for him to be able to afford to live. I just think it's a really cool business model that he's showing in practice that you can do alternative models to very restrictive access on books. 
And I think that's really also embodied by the Kickstarter campaign he's done for a new audiobook version of his new book, Attack Service, specifically to try to avoid Amazon's weird DRM network. So he's mixing theory and practice here in a way that's really admirable. And so his new book, Attack Service, has just come out. It's in the same series of books along with Little Brother and Homeland, which tackle a lot of the issues related to technology, cybersecurity, activism, and stuff related to it. So check those out. Oh, and just for a note for future historians, I think the context in which this interview was done was interesting. We did this interview right after Netflix released a documentary called Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma. So a lot of our discussion is, although we don't mention it, sort of framed by the discourse that's going on right now, where in The Social Dilemma, they make a lot of very big claims about what these companies are capable of. And the activism of the documentary is based on this sort of opposition to personality profiles being kept by organizations, basically being against the attention economy, saying that it should be regulated and suggesting that people change their lives to better moderate their attention. But really notably, it doesn't really have a strong political message about the qualitative differences between different ways of organizing firms, for example. So I just think for especially future historians listening back in, you know, God knows, maybe 2025, 2026, sound off in the comment section if it's that year right now, let us know. Because it really helps enrich some of these ideas and what they're being contrasted with if you have that context. So without further ado, let's talk to, dare I say, friend of the pod, Cory Doctorow. Hi, I'm Cory Doctorow. I write science fiction novels, and I'm an activist who works on issues related to technology. And I've been involved with a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation for nearly 20 years. I was born in Toronto, and I live in California after having been a Londoner for 13 years. And I I helped start an organization similar to EFF in the UK called the Open Rights Group there. We're talking about techno dystopia today, to what degree it's here and how we prevent it. So I wanted to ask you, when it comes to the socio-technical dystopia that is creeping underneath the surface of everyday life, what keeps you up at night right now? Like as someone who's deep in the EFF, deep in the, the copy fight, you've been paying attention to this stuff with a higher degree of focus than many of us. Like what scares you shitless? Well, I guess the thing that really scares me is that we are living through a moment in which our technology is becoming simultaneously more important to like our daily lives in lots of really obvious ways. But our activism is still not oriented well around it. We still focus way too much on believing tech companies when they tell us that like with their ad tech, they can control our minds instead of paying attention to what they're, you know, demonstrably doing, like spying on us and turning our data over to cops. We have bought into or a substantial part of like the tech critical discourse is about how, you know, like it's checkmate for the human race and tech is like made up of these super geniuses who are super villains. And, you know, we need a bunch of remedies that are like different from the remedies that we need for other kinds of monopoly capitalism, which I think means that we won't be able to solve it, right? Because the only solution that we have to the monopoly problem is making common cause with other people who care about monopolies. That like, if we're going to defeat tech, it will be because we find people are being harmed by the monopoly in eyewear and the monopoly in logistics and the monopoly in the big four accounting firms and the monopoly in energy. And we convince them all that they're not really angry about wrestling or energy or eyewear. They're angry about monopolies. And then we all get together and we fight monopolies together. And for so long as we have this tech exceptionalist story that tech is checkmate for the human race because super geniuses figured out how to make a mind control ray to sell you a fidget spinner. And then Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle racist 
with it, we're just doomed. But wait, wait, isn't that all pretty true? Like, isn't that mostly true that Robert Mercer stole data on personality profiles and then use it to make our uncles racist? Well, uh, you know, none of that personality profile stuff actually replicates, right? It's borderline astrology. You know, it's in that realm of psych experiments that have a very thin basis for people asserting that they're true. And certainly, like, Robert Mercer and his cronies went around and told people they had mind control rays, for sure. They may have even believed it in the same way that there's a bunch of people who run hedge funds who think that they can outperform the market, except when you actually look at what they do, they grossly underperform just sticking everything in a Vanguard fund. And, you know, rich people give them billions of dollars to do this, even though year after year after year, they get, you know, returns lower than you would get if you just bought, you know, the bog standard tracker fund. And, you know, as a materialist, the explanation I lean into for why people are racist is that they are, on the one hand, bigoted, as are all of us, we all have unconscious kinds of bias, and that their biases is upregulated by a social system whose material conditions have convinced them that this game of musical chairs is going to accelerate from here on in. We're just going to take chairs away from the table so fast that if you can't keep hold of a chair, you're going to end up under the table. And by the way, all of those SJWs and libs want to invite a bunch of other people to take your chair. And I think that that does make people super racist. I think the history of racism shows that that makes people super racist. But I think that the idea that it was done by making the arguments more compelling doesn't make any sense because the arguments aren't very good, right? The arguments have never, they haven't changed much over the years. You know, if you look at the eugenic arguments that were circulated in the time of Ford and Lindbergh, they're stupid arguments that didn't hold a lot of water. They continue to be stupid arguments that don't hold a lot of water. And the thing that has changed is the material conditions of people at various times that seem to correspond very closely to the way that people view those odious beliefs. And your argument is that when it comes to Facebook's behavior, it isn't so much of an issue of them creating this perfect world of reflective models of the population, but rather just like actually surveilling the day-to-day experience of people, recording all their private messages, and being completely willing to work with any and all law enforcement, no matter how nefarious their aims might be. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem with the mind control ray hypothesis is it suggests that if you break up big tech, right, if you reduce their power, all you'll end up doing is instead of making it harder for them to do bad stuff and distort policy outcomes and commit frauds and do all the bad things that they're doing, what you'll really do is just create a bunch of like pipsqueak sized tech villains each of whom has their own mind control ray, and we will never be able to corral them all under one roof and start bossing them around and telling them what to do. It's like breaking up a comet that's headed towards the Earth and turning it into a giant meteor shower. And what we need to do instead in the mind control ray hypothesis is we need to like tame the comet, right? We need to like strap a rocket engine onto it and start steering it. And, you know, I think that there are people at Facebook who believe that. And I think that there are people at Facebook who don't care whether or not that's true because they would rather be a regulated monopoly than get broken up because they understand that regulated monopolies do have some constraints on their conduct, but they also have these really powerful stakeholders within the state who will look after their interests. The way, you know, AT&T was nearly broken up over and over again. And whenever it happened, the Pentagon would show up and say, like, how can we fight a war in Korea without AT&T? And they'd make the DOJ not break them up. And so when I go to Silicon Valley and I talk about this stuff, I will often hear from sort of 
nerd, you know, Uber mention who will say like, well, I don't care if Google is spying on me because all they want to do is make their products better and I like their products. But, you know, I don't want Govy spying on me. Like the NSA is full of people who are too stupid to get a job in Silicon Valley and who knows what they do with that information. And when I go to, you know, various political circles or, or when I speak to like military cyber institutes or whatever about this stuff, they say, well, you know, Uncle Sam's got all the data on me. You know, I've got security clearance. I had to tell them everything about me. But, you know, Google, those guys that sell their mother for a nickel, I don't want them spying on me. And what they fail to recognize is that the reason governments let tech companies spy on them is because governments are accustomed to plundering the data of tech companies, which makes spying convenient and cost effective. And that there really isn't a separation here of government surveillance and commercial surveillance that they have fused in that kind of Mussolini-ish way of, of fascism as the fusion of industry and government. Yeah, it's interesting to think of these two different sides that they both critique each other, but they're part of the same socio-technical fabric that is doing one thing together. Yeah, well, I mean, as a leftist, I sometimes feel that way about conservatives and liberals. <laughs> it's often the case that people who are on opposite sides of a factional fight have the same major goals, right? And they may have a like a sincerely held difference of opinion about how that fight should be resolved or how those goals should be resolved. And they might really, really care about how it gets resolved. But there are a lot of people who will be affected by that outcome who don't really care, right? Like, so, you know, take Apple, right, which is often held up as a champion of privacy. And Apple is a champion of privacy to the extent that it is good for Apple to be a champion of privacy, to the extent that it gives them a, a competitive tale to tell to people who might be trying to choose between an Apple product and one of their rival's products. But that privacy commitment is strictly limited to the extent that it's commercially advantageous to Apple. So, you know, if you're a Uyghur in China, the fact that Apple took VPNs out of the App Store to help the Chinese government spy on you and decide whether to put you in a concentration camp and not because they wanted to deprive you of your privacy to help sell you a fidget spinner probably doesn't matter to you. Right? Like the ideological basis for establishing surveillance is less important to the people who are surveilled, ultimately, once they figure it out, than the fact of the surveillance itself. We now go to the old two academics arguing at a conference sketch. Hi, thank you both for the talk this evening. So my question is that we're often being fed increasingly this lie that Silicon Valley uh, genius elite are in fact quote unquote geniuses. I actually wrote a blog post to this effect. Can you please both briefly explain uh, how we should conceive of this myth of genius uh, first starting with the professor? Oh, fantastic question. Thank you for asking it. Sure, there's geniuses working at these companies. Very smart people. But it's not because they're special. Genius is everywhere. Genius, as John Taylor Gatto said, is as common as dirt. You have a blog. Now, I haven't read your blog, but I bet there's some genius on there. Thank you. Because the big mistake that people make thinking about genius is that they think that it's something that only special people have, that there's certain people who are geniuses. You know, they're always 10 steps ahead of us because they're overpowered brain that gives them power over other people because they're just so smart and they could outthink every other person on every time. Like... That kind of genius is a myth. Some people have really specialized knowledge in one area and they come up with brilliant ideas once or twice in their life, maybe 10, 20 times in their life. 
But we can all do that. We can all come up with brilliant ideas. The potential for genius, the potential for brilliance is there in each of us. That's, what, that's my take on the myth of genius. Yeah, I find myself again, like many times tonight, finding a lot of points of agreement and disagreement in there. But a big mistake that professors making is, you know, there's people who have high-powered brains specialize in certain ways where they can, for example, remember more than other people or integrate data in different ways than other people do. And that could be sort of understood as a type of genius in a way. But also, in many cases, those great powers come at some loss elsewhere. Now, Brian Eno coined a neologism, senius, which is sort of the genius of a community, senius. So the real genius of Silicon Valley is senius, you know, groups of people working together, collaborating. That's the first key thing to understand is that genius is best understood as instances where different types of sort of complementary genius can come together, make a more powerful, more intelligent group. And the second thing to understand is that Silicon Valley actually doesn't have geniuses really at all anymore. Silicon Valley is probably best defined by its ignorance, by its blindness, by its foolishness. It's true that they can technically do things, but the way that the structural incentives are set up within Silicon Valley basically erases its own genius to the degree that it exists, designed to push out the vast majority of types of innovation, focusing only really narrowly on certain types of profit-based innovation in the advertising and attention industry. So I have to disagree with the professor. Excuse me, before we do the next question, can I just, you started that and ended it by saying you disagreed with me. Yes, but I did. What, what even disagrees with me and what you said? I've got some issues with some of the ways that you conceptualize of, I mean, I've been covering it all night. Like I didn't say senius, but I did say genius doesn't come from like these one lone individuals having great ideas and great ideas are everywhere. I never said that wasn't true. I never said that was the problem with what you were saying. Yeah, you just said there was a problem, but you didn't say what the problem was, which is what my problem is with what you said. Oh yeah, you're winning a lot of points with this one. This, the audience is riveted. Can we take the next question? I mean, uh, I, yes, I have a question. I'm a huge fan of both of your work. I was just wondering, where did this animosity come from? Why are you two so angry with each other? I kind of imagined you best buds, two of a pair, sharing ideas, strolling down the street together. Uh, actually, I was watching some of your lectures. The Five minutes later. Uh, yes, great question. I don't know where the animosity is coming from. Before tonight, I had no pro I barely knew who he was. <laughs> What do you think? I don't know if there's any, been any animosity on my end. I think there's a rigorous engagement of ideas going on that I felt enriched by. I didn't realize that he felt intimidated by it. Oh, I didn't feel intimidated, but just the audience is noticing your passive aggressiveness. No, it's okay. I mean, you don't need to text anyone in the audience, get them to go up to the mic. Wait, I'm sorry, are you accusing me of texting this questioner? Anytime I'm talking, you're always texting. I don't know what you're texting about, but- Not about you, okay? If you think what? I'm texting about you, it's a bit big-headed. I'm not sure, I maybe think. just a round, quick round of applause in the audience who thinks he was probably texting about me yeah see that's a lot of people actually do agree with that a round of applause for everyone who thinks that's not true see even bigger yeah you got your diehards even now but i don't have diehards you have contrarians is what is going on before we here. finish off this q a can we just take a quick break for him to cool off you know what thank you I'm not going to deny that I'm angry with you or anything. I am, and I do need time to cool off. So that's a great idea. Well, I've got nothing but respect for you taking that space when you need it. So five private minutes with just you and your private thoughts. That's an appropriate size audience for the types of I would stuff think it was been... appropriate for you to well, deal with your own feelings and to think about what you're going through. But I think you're actually so unaware of what you're doing and you're kind of acting out all this stuff without being aware of it. And I'm just noticing it and I'm just furious and I would tell you to reflect on it, but I don't think you're going to be able to, so. 
Well, I didn't, hey, I didn't mean to rub you the wrong way there by saying that it's a good thing that no one has to hear the stuff you have to say. I just meant it more I think of you like did. a casual. I think you did no, it was mean like to amusing, rub me the wrong like way. oh, you know, maybe it's better if people don't hear you when you're like this. You know, something you can say. It's normal. It's not normal to react to it. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, another conference is being held, a press conference, where the United States military and Silicon Valley are unveiling their newest joint project. Hi everyone, thanks for taking our military press conference today. We just wanted to share some exciting new technological news, more proof that the geniuses who work behind the scenes on technology are pushing us ever more towards greater social frontiers inherently. Unmanned aerial drones, they've got a little bit of a PR problem because people don't see them, people don't know them. If you get to know them, your opinion will be completely changed. So that's why we are proud to announce that we are using the metadata from everyone's cell phones, so it's completely fine. It's not real data, it's just data about how long their calls were, who they called, where they were at the time of call, who the people that they've called have called, etc. at what times, where they were. And we've used the genius algorithms of predictions in Silicon Valley to predict when someone needs a hug. And we have trained our unmanned aerial drones to perform unmanned aerial hugs. We've got here with me the lead scientist on the project. What is it that makes an unmanned aerial hug so special? Well, to answer that question, maybe I'll just back up a little bit and answer a different question, which is, why did I want to pursue this project in the first place? Babies who aren't touched will die because human beings need touch. Mm -hmm. And having other humans touch you, especially in an embrace with the arms around you and your arms around them, it's really nourishing to the human soul, to who humans are on a deep level. It's something that, unfortunately, in this ever more atomized society, people just weren't getting enough of. There are children, I shit you not, who have gone their entire lives without a hug before this program. And that lack, that need for hugs, is what motivated me to want to do this. And the public PR problem that aerial drones have was another thing I care deeply about, and it just seemed like a match made in heaven to combine these two things and to give aerial drones the power to hug. And I don't know what to say other than we delivered. These hugs are just as good as the human alternative. You know, people are always telling us the technology itself doesn't matter. It matters how the technology is used, by who and to whom. And I think today we've just really shown that the types of metadata that governments tend to take will tend to be used for hugging. Thank you, everyone. This is something that comes up in these discussions too around surveillance is that usually when something is surveilled and when data is captured, even if it's just intended for one purpose, there's data leaks, there's hackers, there's people who can intercept the data somehow. So even if you can somehow just have the good guys watch you, there's no guarantee that the data is going to stop there. If the data is out there, what are the risks of that kind of like data leakage? I remember, if you recall, there was a Canadian company called Ashley Madison. That, I was a that... subscriber for a long time. <laughs> oh, you were very good. Yes. Well, congratulations. Uh, you were a subscriber for a long time, and you are demographically similar to all the other subscribers who all turned out to be men. 
Uh, Ashley Madison was both a service for people who wanted to cheat on their wife and a scam in which all the women turned out to be bots or lesbians looking for each other. But there were effectively no women seeking men on the entire platform. But it was a platform for people who wanted to non-consensually cheat on their spouses. And they suffered a really ghastly breach. And all of that information got out. And it is obviously a very sensitive breach. And it happened around the same time that a U.S. governmental agency called the Office of Personnel Management also suffered a giant breach. And OPM is the agency that performs classification screening for U.S. government and military personnel as well as contractors. So if you want to get top secret clearance to work on the Hill or to work on some sensitive equipment, you have to go to them. And you have to reveal everything that might be used to blackmail you. They have to know it all. So, you know, my mom is addicted to heroin. My brother's still in the closet. You know, whatever. You have to tell them I'm all of Ashley it. I'm Madison. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so then you have these two breaches at the same time. And now you can cross-reference Ashley Madison breaches against people with security clearance. Right? Like... That is obviously like a really serious problem of the that kind of breach. There's also, you know, identity theft issues and so on. But there's two areas that I think are underappreciated when we talk about breaches. The first one is a highly technical one. It's something called re-identification. So there are a bunch of allegedly anonymized or de-identified data sets that we release for really good reasons, right? For research purposes. So like, for example, the NHS did a big release of prescribing data really useful to have a big longitudinal corpus of prescribing data and know, you know, like a lot of what we know about medicine is very flawed because the pharmaceutical industry is very concentrated and, and does pretty limited testing is not really held to account. I mean, you know, the opioid epidemic kind of demonstrates that, but you know, the most commonly prescribed class of drugs in the world are statins and no two statins have ever been tested head to head as part of their approval process. They're only ever evaluated against placebos. So we don't even know which statin works best. It's the most commonly prescribed form of medication. And you have to take it for the rest of your life once you start taking it. And we don't know which of the many varieties is the one you should take, right? It's it's really crazy. And so releasing prescribing data is really useful, right? Like I might tell you that men who are prescribed statins within five years have a much higher than you would expect chance of also being put on blood thinners or antidepressants or some other drug, Right. And so they release all this prescribing data, and it's a randomly assigned identifier for each person, each patient, the doctor's name and which hospital they're affiliated with, and the drugs, and the date and the time of the prescription. But then a major taxi company, Addison Lee, had a breach, and it revealed which rides from which houses corresponded to those prescriptions being written. So it allowed attackers to re-identify a really large portion of that data set. Because if I can see that every time patient XYZ goes to this doctor, a taxi goes from your house to the hospital, and that it's 100% correlated, then I can make a strong inference that you are patient XYZ. And so that re-identification problem is really hard because what it does is it takes all controlled releases and adds a degree of unquantifiable risk to them. Because you can never know when you make a controlled release whether new breaches down the way, or even deliberate releases made in ignorance of your own or without consideration for your own, but much more riskily, these uncontrolled breaches down the road that will allow for re-identification, that will have the identifier keys that are needed to re-identify everyone in your data set. 
And it's a massive problem. First, because big data sets can be used for good purposes, and we do need reliable ways to do research on them. And second, because the risks are really potentially very ghastly to the people in them. Imagine if patient XYZ is not someone who's on statins, but rather someone who's on hormone treatments for gender reassignment, and they live with an abusive parent who doesn't know about it and either get kicked out of their house or maybe even murdered, as has been the case far too many times in people who are transitioning, that that's like a potentially gigantic risk. But the other risk is a much more philosophical one. And it comes from an understanding of how we make social change. We live in this moment now in which a lot of things that were considered illegal and that you could go to prison for and people did go to prison for in living memory are now not only considered normal and even beneficial, but the fact that people went to prison for doing them is considered a kind of stain on our moral character, whether it's you know smoking cannabis or so-called interracial marriage and so on and so on. And the way that we got from there to here was that people who couldn't talk about who they really were, their true selves, for fear of retaliation, were able to have private lives, right? Private lives where they could find one another and find a vocabulary for talking about what they felt. One of the things about the internet age is that it's given the people who for all of human history have known that their gender was not a binary or that their gender was not the gender they were assigned at birth has given them a way to find other people who feel the same way and to get shut of the feeling that they are somehow aberrant or wrong and instead understand that they represent part of the spectrum of human gender, of normal human expressions of gender. And then the other thing that it let people do was make common cause with those who didn't have a dark secret, right? To whisper their truth before they shouted it, to find people who might be allies and who didn't need to fear retaliation if they expose their true selves and come out to them and build alliances. And that's ultimately how we get political change. And if you take away the ability of people to have an authentic private life, they won't substitute an authentic public life for it because you don't take away the retaliation that they would suffer as a result. Instead, you force them into an inauthentic private and public life in which the people that you love right now, the people whose happiness matters to you, will never get the chance to fully reveal themselves to you, to be their authentic selves with you. And when they die, they will die with like a, a hole in their heart because they have never been authentic with you and you have never truly known them. And it will be because we never had a private realm in which those discussions could take place. And so between this technical thing where re-identification creates these great risks and the social thing where the progress, the moral progress of our species relies on a private realm, over collection and retention of data becomes a really serious existential problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a fascinating ethical issue to think that we could lose out on each other because of this stuff. This, if not surveillance, maybe even just the idea of surveillance. I mean, ultimately, unless you have the hubris to think that in 20, 70, your grandkids will sit around the table and say, uh, and I know you guys do a, a good grandpa and grandkid shtick, daddy and boy shtick, it's going to sit around the Christmas table and say like, Tell me again, Grandpa, how was it in 2020 that we had perfected the human condition, right? And have had no changes needed since. Then there are people who have things about themselves that they haven't talked to you about. People whose happiness is critical to your own and whose authentic selves you'll never know. 
We now go to the Grandpa and Grandkids Shtick Christmas Special in the year 2070. Oh, come along, grandkids. Sit here around the Christmas table with your old grandpa. Grandpa, tell me again how in 2020 we had perfected the human condition, which is why we haven't had any changes in our society for 50 years. I love this oh, story. Oh, yes. One of Grandpa's old favorites. You were just a young man then, weren't you, Grandpa? I was. 21 years young. <laughs> you see, before the year 2020, there was a lot of secret evil in the world. Oh, no. And to cover up that secret evil, people would wear these metaphorical masks they would present one version of themselves in public, but beneath that they would have what's called a realm of privacy. Oh no, Grandpa, but knowing that we're being watched keeps us from committing murder. And that's why privacy had to go, because you see, in 2020, on the internet, what would happen was that the mask would slip off a little bit, and people would say, mask off, because they saw the secret evil underneath, and so... Uh, well, we can't just wait for the mask to slip. We need to be proactive in, in trying to surveil private moments and see what's really going on behind the mask, Grandpa. That's a smart little grandkid, that's right. <laughs> now, in the year 2020, there were also some intrepid geniuses. Now, these men ran some of the biggest companies in the world, and what these brilliant men did with their companies was they reached behind the masks and tore them off everybody's faces. And then we could all see how everybody was, so people immediately stopped doing anything that was wrong. And then once nobody's doing anything wrong, there's no need for anybody to change. An eschaton was passed. The knowledge of complete surveillance launched each and every person into perfection. And with perfection comes a lack of necessity for change. Because why would you change what's perfect, grandkid? Oh. Why would you? I'm asking you. Why would you change what's perfect? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. That's a good little grandkid. Now make sure there's some stuffing on that Christmas plate. And gravy, too. Grandpa, can you pass the mashed potatoes? Oh, yeah, grandkid. Here you go. Mashed potatoes. Now that we're just sitting here around the Christmas table, do you think, Grandpa, you could indulge me in a little Christmas thought experiment? Oh, a Christmas thought experiment. You're making your grandpa so proud. Who's been to see the Christmas mall Sam Harris at the mall? Now, in order for this scene to make any sense, just to be clear, within Wrongtown, a long time ago, they got rid of Santa, replaced him with Mall Sam Harris, judges whether or not children are rational, and then gives the gifts accordingly. And of course, the way that he judges the children is by presenting them with a Sam Harris thought experiment, where the point is to get you to agree that in some concocted scenario, it would be a really good idea to torture or racially profile or bomb Muslim countries. This change was introduced as a response to the kind of nonsense that Santa would tell the children. Back to the sketch. Yeah, so in 2020, when they completely phased out the private sphere, what if, hypothetically, as a thought experiment, they had imperfect values that still should be subjected to further changes and revisions in a sort of private space to explore their ideas and discover who they are through the process of safe, limited spaces where they weren't being watched either by their peers or by the government and police. Wouldn't that as a thought experiment make it so that people like grandkids and their grandfathers could never truly be close, robbed of even their own selves oh. by an omnipresent surveillance? Oh, grandkid. I hope the algorithm doesn't catch that. This is not perfection. This. Why are you saying this? Why are you doing this to me? 
Why couldn't you do a, a nice thought experiment about killing some poor starving people on the other side of the world to save a baby or something? What if it was happening right now? Like, what if a grandkid was sharing a thought experiment and then because of the society having like imperfect values and its application of surveillance and the idea that we feel surveilled in our heads and then like a grandpa and a grandkid aren't able to talk about it and they become push further apart on a number of issues because they're mediated by this surveillance body. Oh, see, now you've gone, you've upset the smart house. Grandkid, you're gonna have to recant or the tubes are gonna come and take you away. Recant a what if, Grandpa? Yes, and recant that attitude too, quickly. The algorithm's listening. It's detecting each of your imperfect thoughts. But Grandpa, what if it's not actually perfect? It's a thought experiment. Then changing would be good. Oh, you're ruining Christmas. Uh, oh, the too. <laughs> Well, at least now he'll go to the change camps to change him back to the perfect grandkid we once knew. Hmm. Oh, tube must loop around back past the house. Yeah, I don't know. Not the best Christmas. I want to pivot to another dystopian thing because there's so many here and they're so interconnected. You've been such a great critic of DRM. So digital rights management is basically this idea that corporations want to create ways to, for example, when it comes to movies and music, you can get a digital copy on your computer, but they're going to make sure that you can't copy it. You can't pass it on to your friends. You can't loan it to anyone if you get an ebook, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of blew my mind about DRM 10 years ago. I was like, holy crap. It's not just that I want to copy this music, which I do. It's that we're on a road to a techno dystopia because of it. Thank you for those kind words. When you work on urgent activism about esoteric issues, it can feel a little lonely. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, DRM is definitely one of those urgent esoteric issues, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So the thing to understand is that while we might think of digital rights management as the thing that stops you from streaming to a Chromecast unless you're using a Google-approved video source or something, the real thing that DRM is is a law. It's a law, the Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the Canadian Copyright Act that was updated in 2011 by the Tories, the US-Australian Free Trade Agreement, Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive from 2001, and so on. These laws that make it a felony to remove or tamper with or reveal defects in DRM or provide tools to get rid of them. And the original sin here was not merely conceiving of a technology that would try to control the owner of a device so that even though it's yours, you don't get to use it the way you want. It was in failing to tie the law that protected that technology to copyright infringement. Because whatever you feel about copyright and whether you think it's legitimate or illegitimate, the copyright contours are set by democratic legislatures. Right? The, the parliament writes the Copyright Act. And we have an imperfect, difficult means, but we can, in fact, amend copyright. We can create new fair dealings. We can create new limitations and exceptions. We can do that in court. We can do that through our legislatures. The failure to tie DRM remedies, the remedies under the law, to copyright infringement, and instead making just bypassing DRM itself a crime, means that any manufacturer who designs a device so that you have to bypass DRM in order to use it in ways that benefit you at the expense of the manufacturer's shareholders can criminalize using your stuff in ways that make your life better 
and can force you to arrange your affairs to benefit the firm that made the device. That they can sort of conjure out of thin air a doctrine that we can call felony contempt of business model. And we have seen the metastasis of DRM, you know, first as like this petty grift to stop you from like deregionalizing your DVD player or to make you uh, buy your console games from the manufacturer instead of from indie games developers, right? Now, DRM is what stops you from repairing a Medtronic ventilator. And it's what stops you from adapting your Abbott Labs continuous glucose monitor so that it can work with someone else's insulin pump. And it's what stops you from repairing your John Deere tractor. It's become this kind of ubiquitous feature of our technology. And not only does this bind you to arrange your affairs to the manufacturer's ends, right? Not only does this force you as the customer to act in ways that benefit them, it also limits what competitors can do. So if you think about inkjet refilling, that's a kind of, you know, I'm not going to tell you that markets will solve all of our problems. But if the only problem with the printer is that the ink costs more than vintage Veuve Clicquot, there is a simple market remedy for that that can be reliably arrived at, which is that someone will come along and say, well, you know, instead of the 50 million percent markup on that ink, I'm willing to manufacture a cartridge with a 500 percent markup on that ink. And all of the things being equal, you would see like an equilibrium where the ink cost about as much as it does to manufacture. But with DRM, if you design the device so that refilling the cartridge or manufacturing a new one involves bypassing DRM, then competing with the company that is using the DRM becomes a crime, a felony. And then finally, the way that you can avail yourself of the protections in law for DRM is to put software in the device. That's the key piece, right? Because it's, it's breaking a, a software lock that's illegal. And software, and particularly software security, only has one methodology for demonstrating its quality, for knowing whether it does what it's supposed to do. And that's adversarial peer review, right? To let other people poke at it and see if you made any dumb mistakes, because we are none of us infallible. We are all of us prone to error. And without that kind of third-party scrutiny, we will trip ourselves up the way that scientists have tripped themselves up since time immemorial, since science was alchemy. And the lack of peer review convinced everyone that drinking mercury would be a good idea. And we see security researchers who find defects in car engine parts and mobile phones, artificial organs and medical implants, home cameras and home smart speakers who have their hands tied when they want to tell us that this thing that we're entrusting our safety, our lives, our data to are not fit for purpose. And the manufacturer gets to extend its control, not just to competitors, but to critics as well. And, you know, there is no company that doesn't, in its heart, dream of a day in which you're not allowed to criticize them, you're not allowed to compete with them, and all the customers have to shut up and do what they're told. So this is a moral hazard, right? Like, it invites companies that are, after all, free of any kind of ethical center and just chase the money. It invites them to chase money in ways that cuts strongly against our national resilience, that leaves us in times of pandemic unable to repair our own medical equipment, that cuts strongly against our interests as citizens, and leaves us, you know, in the United States, there's an enormous problem that voting machines can't be audited because they have DRM in them, and deprives us of our rights as fully functional humans in the world who should be able to adapt the things that we use so that they suit our needs and not someone else's. 
This DRM stuff that he's talking about, when I was working at a hotel in the breakfast room, there was a automatic pancake maker little machine and you put the pancake mix in the top and there's these two silicone belts that the pancake mix would squish between and they were like heated up and it would cook the pancake and every once in a while you have to swap out the belts when you install a new belt it comes with a 16 digit code that you have to type into the pancake maker and if it doesn't accept the code then it doesn't work anymore and it won't make pancakes so this was potentially a fully automated luxury pancake making utopia is this like to keep people from using third-party belts or something like it's not actually the belt they're selling it's like yeah i think it was also at least they claimed a safety thing so that you had to swap out the belts fast enough or whatever like it lets you use one belt for a certain amount of pancakes before you have to replace it but like when you type in the code on the new belt the machine does this whole rigmarole where it a progress bar goes across the tiny screen and if that process fucked up and it restarted you lost the belt code and you had to tear open a new package use that code and then just throw away the belt because there's no point in keeping it because you would need a code to install it the next time. It's like a process where the corporation, under the pretense of some idea of safety, creates a product whose function is monopolized by a single corporation, making it so that they can charge whatever they want for their belts because it's impossible for another company to make codes for their software. They can only make belts for their machine yeah exactly. and it's in the interest of protecting the consumer from something but it ultimately just means that you can never really own your own pancake machine i just was like always so angry when i had to like throw out these belts and software being this block that prevented you from using this perfectly good belt in this perfectly good pancake machine that could use the belt physically like it would work it would make pancakes with the belt. It would work perfectly, but it just needs this code. I think Dr. O makes a really strong point when he points out that the thing that is preventing you from using your own pancake machine there is a law that says that you have to listen to what the business model is. You can't you know, do some tinkering underneath the hood and just make the pancake machine make sense. It's a federal offense to take your own pancake machine and tinker with it, which is like, I don't know. I, I sort of think when it comes to people's technology in their houses and stuff, I feel like it would be a better society where we encouraged tinkering broadly and like understanding what's underneath the hood of the things around us, making it so it's like illegal to even try to know and like try to break it and try to understand it. Like, a, you know, a locksmith with a really tricky lock who might enjoy the process of lock picking as an art because lock picking is neither good nor bad it has good purposes like if a child was locked in a bathroom and they were like afraid <laughs> and they were gonna like starve without food it makes sense to break that lock <laughs> yeah. like it makes sense to hire someone to pick that lock and what yeah. drm is doing through the law is saying we only care about form we don't care about content the actual picking of locks itself is a moral is illegal and is a federal offense, no matter the reason why or for what purpose. Uh, yeah, like going to my maintenance job in the staff room, people would lose the little keys for their locks that they use for their lockers and they would want to get into their lockers and I would break out the bolt cutters and cut their locks open. 
if we lived in a world where locks were like DRM and it was illegal to use bolt cutters on a lock period, we would just, I don't know, like have to leave that closed unless we got permission from the people who created the lock. And now it's time for the horrifying dystopian places that we could put DRM sketch. So what's the absolute worst place DRM could go? What do we want to avoid happening with this software lock being available to companies to put in whatever they want? Yeah, it's not like medicine. Yeah, your prescription pill bottles. Uh, what else is needed? Water and food and... Yeah, children's water fountains at school. Access to your own home. Yeah. All of that is bad. It, <laughs> like, all of that is really bad. Yeah, it's bad. It's dystopian. But is it an escalation from coronavirus ventilators, which do have DRM and are not fully in commission because of DRM in real life? Yeah, it's worth sitting on. It's so intense. You know, someone's sick. Someone has coronavirus. Someone is you know, very possibly gonna die in this pandemic. They're at the hospital. The hospital has a ventilator. The ventilator needs like one part and they have the part, but they don't have the code. So sorry, you can't, your lungs can't function. Well, and if you wanna put that part in, we're gonna have to send a specialist out to you. Or, I mean, if you're in Australia, maybe you'll have to ship your entire machine back to America to be repaired so they can enter the code themselves. <laughs> oh yeah, my coronavirus-ridden lungs will just hold out, no problem. Oh, oh, you don't Great have the idea. code? Oh, I totally understand. <gasps> I wouldn't want to steal <laughs> oh, God, a code. So yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to... Yeah, so it is hard to imagine something more brutal than reality for this sketch, so... Like, there's a lot of bad stuff that they aren't doing with DRM yet, but I'm not sure that there's anything that they aren't doing with DRM yet I can think of that's worse than this. You know, maybe under regular circumstances, hospitals can wait a couple months for a service technician from the company to come out, do the fix and stuff, and the whole intellectual property business model doesn't kill anyone. But when you enter a pandemic, then you're talking about having specialized workmen enter coronavirus-ridden areas because the company has chosen as a business model to deny the people who work with the machines and have specialization on them the right to understand how to repair them. You know, there's even an example of a company actually asking websites to take down guides about how these things work that can be used to save lives if they're applied. There was a report released by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, which did interviews with 222 biomedical repair professionals and found that nearly half of them reported that they had been denied access to critical repair information, parts, or service keys since March of this year. During, during the coronavirus. Half of them. <laughs> Sorry, it's really not funny, but it just clicked for me that nearly half of them referred to specifically during the coronavirus crisis as it relates to ventilators and other related service, like half. One and two. Yeah, there's lots of wild shit in this thing. Like, do you have ventilators that you cannot put back into use because you lack access to parts and service information? 30% of respondents say yes. And only 40% said no, because another 30% said they weren't sure. Like, less than half of them were able to say, oh, no, that's not true for me. How often do manufacturers refuse to sell you spare parts? Somewhat frequently? 36.2%. Sometimes, but infrequently, 48%. And I've never had this happen to me, 
7.7%. Hey, has a manufacturer ever refused to sell you spare parts on the necessary medical equipment that you need to keep people alive? Oh, 7.7% of you say never, and everyone else <laughs> says some <laughs> variation on yes? It's not funny. That's, it's, oh yeah, and it's worth noting that in 2018, the FDA did an investigation into the manufacturer's claims that it was needed for safety reasons to do this sort of thing, to limit people out of their own machines, to limit specialists out of their own machines. And the FDA found that there was no evidence whatsoever to say that third-party repair people or specialists couldn't deal with it themselves. So this is just obviously a parasitic business model kind of thing, not a safety concern. They always sort of wrap their dystopian shit and these fake safety concerns yeah same thing with the pancake belt same thing with these sorry i just keep reading this article according to one biomedical technician an unnamed manufacturer attempted to decertify all of a hospital's technicians due to their failure to complete a biannual recertification requirement during the pandemic when the manufacturer was not offering recertification courses we're going to take away your right to fix this machine because you aren't checking our boxes off that you can't check because there's a pandemic going on. It's just our right. It's our intellectual property right to do that. My God. We often think of in politics, people's basic needs and people's desires being these like separate spheres. And the sort of technology and politics and laws around DRM are such a great example of how first DRM limited people's desires, but in the long game, there was a relationship between the suppression of desire in the form of Celine Dion CDs and others to the eventual suppression of need. So these are people who regularly face life or death situations where they have an hour or two to fix a piece of equipment and a person's life will depend on it. And then the company that manufactures these things, they artificially limit people's ability to save lives in actual reality during the current coronavirus pandemic. That's the world that we already live in. Yeah, it's pretty dystopian. It's basically like a seriously wrong sketch. If that wasn't happening, I think that's the sketch we would be doing right now. Oh, wouldn't it be wild if they put this DRM in ventilators, that really important thing right now? Ooh, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we're not going to have a sketch this week on this subject, but thank you for listening. Wasn't there also examples of like Sony DRM putting malicious code on people's computer that hid itself and then helped hackers to hide themselves as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example. So yeah, one of the things about DRM is that although it's not hard for a skilled attacker to defeat because, you know, ultimately the way DRM works is you like hide a secret, a cryptographic secret in a piece of equipment that you then give to the people who you hope won't find the secret. And like putting cryptographic secrets and things that you give to your enemies, the technical term for it is wishful thinking. <laughs> and, you know, the companies, they want to hide the secrets from us, right? So that we don't just like drag the DRM into the trash can and reboot the computer. <laughs> and so the way that they, they make that work is they find ways of tricking the computer into not being able to see the processes that the DRM is executing, not being able to see the files. And Sony, in 2005, they shipped 6 million CDs. This is when Sony was a record label when they owned Sony BMG. They shipped 6 million CDs, 51 titles. 
that had what was called a rootkit on them. And these were CDs that exploited a vulnerability in Windows that Microsoft hadn't yet fixed. And so when you put the CD in your CD drive, it rewrote your operating system so that it could no longer see files that had a, a little string of characters at the beginning of them, dollar sign, SYS, dollar sign. And if the file started with those characters and you listed out the directory, it wouldn't show you that file. And if it was a program and it was running and you listed out all the running programs, it wouldn't show you that program. And this rootkit was spread to millions of computers around the world. At least 200,000 US military and government networks were infected with it. And as soon as it spread, malicious software writers said, oh, <laughs> Sony is like punch this blind spot through the immune systems of devices and networks around the world. We should just start all of our viruses with this string of characters that Sony's malware uses to hide itself from the operating system. And that cloak of invisibility, that moat in the eye of the computer will be available to us too. And so there's malicious software that burned its way around the world using this vulnerability that had been introduced by Sony. Now, Sony just wanted to run a hidden program that would shut down your CD drive if you tried to rip a CD. But the malicious software, you know, stole your data and did all kinds of bad things to you. Do you happen to know what music that was and if it ended up on the Pirate Bay anyways? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it all ended up on the Pirate Bay for sure. I, I don't know all of it. I do know that there's a Canadian connection because one of them was Celine Dion. Wow, <laughs> Celine. I know. Just <laughs> We expect better. Just another thing we can blame her for. In your collection of essays content, you quote a security expert, Bruce Schneier, and he yeah. says making uncopyable files is like trying to make water that's not wet. Y so yeah. isn't it kind of true that like all DRM is a type of malware by design? You know, when I started working on this stuff, I came from the same place you did, right? I wanted to listen to music and it was mine and I wanted to be able to use it the way I wanted to. And I wanted to be able to share it with a friend or two if that was what I wanted to do, because that was fair dealing and, and so on. But what I came to realize is that the technology is actually less important than the law. That the technology itself, because we live in a networked world, like you don't have to be smart enough to remove the DRM. You just need to be able to search for someone who is smart enough to remove the DRM. The problem is the law that makes that person's activities into a felony and sends them into the shadows. So, you know, John Deere uses DRM to stop you from fixing your own tractor. A farmer will do what farmers have done since time immemorial. You know, there's a reason that there's a forge and a workshop attached to every farmhouse all the way back to Roman times. When their tractor breaks, they fix it, right? They get the part and they stick it in the tractor. So far, so good. John Deere has arranged things so that the tractor doesn't recognize the part until a technician shows up and types an unlock code into the keyboard. And like finding out what that unlock code is without talking to the technician is a felony. And so what started to happen, because farmers, you know, need to make hay when the sun shines and they need to bring in the crops when the hailstorm is coming, is they started throwing out John Deere's software for this. And there's someone in Ukraine, and we don't know who, and we don't know what their motives are, and we don't know what they're about, who makes an alternative operating system for John Deere tractors. And all around the world, farmers are installing this unknown stuff into their tractors. And it works so far, but we don't know if it's kill switched. We don't know anything about it. And so you can think of it, yes, as malware, but like you can also think of the epiphenomenon or the, the you know, second order consequences of the law as being something not dissimilar to like the move from heroin to fentanyl, 
you know, like that we go from activities that do have some risks, but are managed and that can be improved through harm reduction. Like, like, I'm not going to tell you farmers can't break their tractor. Sure, they can break their tractor. They might even break it in dangerous ways that make it blow up. I mean, so to authorize technicians. And meanwhile, farmers still need to fix their tractors. So we should make it easier and harder for them to blow up their tractor. And instead of harm reduction, when we go for prohibition, you don't get compliance, you get criminalization and all of the evils that come with criminalization. Yeah, it's like how because we don't have good, full-featured online libraries where people can access the stuff they need, they need to go to torrent sites and places where you click on the wrong download link and they're putting malware on your computer because that's their business model there in the black market. Yeah, that's right. There are people who do this stuff because they care about it and have good motives. You know, Medtronic's workhorse ventilators, if you have a busted monitor on one and you have another one that is busted, but the monitor works and you swap the monitor and the working ventilator and you bodge them together, unless someone enters what they call a sync code, the two won't work together. And there's a Polish technician who was certified by Medtronic and then quit. And he still has the software that generates the unlock codes, and he makes little hardware dongles in things like old lamp cases and guitar pedals and mails them to technicians around the world so they can keep ventilators working, that seems which is like the most a... cyberpunk thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also solving a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cool and all, but like, what a lot of ingenuity and talent that could be directed to just, you know, making better ventilators or like fixing more ventilators. Like it's just such a perverse distortion of how you would want technology policy to make the world look. That's the whole point of policy is policy is supposed to realize some worldview, right? It's supposed to approximate some ideal. We want X, Y, and Z to happen. So we go out and do it. And you know, when Canada was bringing in its DRM law, I got into a, a Twitter fight with James Moore who's out your way is the MP for Coquitlam at the time, the Tory MP. He actually had to resign because of a sex scandal. He yeah. had been <laughs> being called Wilfred via yeah. text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, he's, a, he's a, a bad man. But he and Tony Clement, who also had to resign because of a scandal, there's kind of a pattern That's true. there, I guess. Yeah, huh. they were both conservative copyright guys during my like time of anti-copyright advocacy. They were both the enemies. Uh, uh, now, how did you get your friends to bang those two Tory ministers? Anyway, well, I Tony got into Clemente this... would actually slip into like leftist activist girls DMs before. No. He... Yeah, yeah. I know people through like the Social Democratic Party and stuff that are like, yeah, Tony Clement messaged me oh, too. Oh, what a creep. Anyway, so James Moore, you know, I picked this fight with him on Twitter and I said, like, if I own an iPad, why shouldn't I be able to decide what software runs on it? It's mine, right? I bought it. Like, you're supposed to believe in property, right? And in so-called intellectual property. So some software author out there writes an app for my iPad. It's his intellectual property. I own the iPad. It's my actual non-metaphorical property. I want to run his program on my iPad. And you're saying that unless, like, Steve Jobs says that it's okay, that it should be a felony. And he said, well, you know, if you don't want to, if you don't want to abide by the rules that Apple sets down, don't buy an Apple product. And I was like, aren't you meant to be the property maximalist? Like, how is it that I am the one arguing for property rights here? Like something has gone horribly topsy-turvy in Canadian politics when Tories are saying property rights are evil and we should reduce them so that, you know, our social purposes can be met. Like, I mean, I guess that's the story of every pipeline as well. It's always been highly selective. 
But it was weird to have him saying it right there and then, you know, so bluntly. Well, yeah, I guess the heart of the advocacy for property rights isn't based on the abstract principle of people having property. It's based on protecting the massive wealth and holdings of the real property owners, you know, like the 12 multinational corporations that own all the intellectual property that lease us the John Deere tractors yeah. that in the future are going to be leasing us our iPads and taking them away when we stop paying our subscription fees. <laughs> like, that's what yeah. they mean by property. Yeah, I mean, I hear you, but, you know, not by their own lights, right? Like when you, you know, you're right. And that, I guess that's the point of having these fights with them is to flush them out on this. You know, they're all like in Hernando de Soto and John Lockland, where they're like, Property rights automatically emerge when you mix your labor with, you know, terra nullius, which is lock, right? And then without property and without markets, you have these kind of anti-commons effects where no one can get anything done. And so property rights are how, you know, markets are able to do their magic allocations. And so you go to them and you say like, wait a second, I wrote this app, which means that I like mix my labor with this terra nullius of like software code. And we want to have markets and for this stuff so that we can get efficient allocations. Like, why do we get a commissar in Cupertino who gets to structure the market according to their five-year plan instead of having, you know, the all-against-all world of your beautiful Ayn Randian vision? And they're like, you know, humming the internationale and like uh, rearranging the columns in their five-year plan and talking about how great it's going to be when the wheat harvest comes in. It's bizarre. Now have a look at this beautiful car right here. Isn't Ooh, she beautiful? A real perfect love it love the paint job yeah this old girl wasn't in great shape when i got her from the scrap lot but you know my old man taught me how to fix up a car and look at her she rides well too just a, a beaut you want to pop open the hood oh you don't have to ask me twice what you got in there v6 v8 oh yeah v8 nice uh, i bet it purrs oh yeah i love owning repairing fixing up working with my hands you know that's what my dad taught me yeah i feel like you don't really own a car unless you know how to take it apart and change the oil yourself yeah and... that's the thing with the kids right these kids these days they don't really own anything they don't know how to take apart their iphones they don't repair their iMacs. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, yeah. maybe if there was pumpkin spice inside. There's some of them. I got a nephew. He's this 13-year-old kid. He was showing me these special screwdrivers he had to order to bust open his own iPhone. It's these companies nowadays, too. They don't make it easy for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, now they got this digital rights management. What I call it is digital crap management. It interferes with the rights of hardworking people who love their cars like me. All these parts now, you got to like call the companies to activate them if you want to install it. I was on the phone with them for 45 minutes, asking them to give me this goddamn part. They're saying they don't make it anymore, and they're saying they won't let other people make it either. And I'm like, where am I supposed to get this part from, you jackals? Yeah, I thought we lived in a country with freedom. When you bought a car, you owned a car. And I mean, that's the beauty of the free market, right? If someone's not making the part to a car, well, then an entrepreneur can get set up and start making them and selling them, and then they get a little money for themselves. They help people out. That's the system at work. But that's just not how it's working these days. I was reading 2013, this car, Renault Zoe, it had a feature where instead of owning the own battery of your electric car, you license it with DRM that gives the company the power to prevent the battery from charging. So you're saying some suits down in Silicon Valley or wherever they are can push a all button, that crap valley can push a button and turn off the battery to my car. 
No, thank you. I don't want Elon Musk deciding whether or not my battery is working. I know you said it was a different company, but I don't trust that guy. But I know. Elon's no better. Actually, earlier this year in 2020, some poor schmuck buys this Tesla Model S. He's like, oh, I'm getting a Model S. It does everything a Model S does. Tesla goes and looks, oh, this is a used car, not the guy who bought it from us. We're going to turn off its autopilot feature because it's run through the central computer of the Tesla. And if this poor idiot wants to get autopilot in his car again, oh, he's going to have to pay the suits another 8,000 bucks. Even though he bought the car that was perfectly working, already had autopilot. I tell you, man, I'm probably never going to buy a car newer than 2010 again. Did you hear there was a lawsuit recently where Ford... Ford, American car company, not one of these Tesla Silicon Valley types. Yeah, a real American car for a real American man who likes to fix things with his hands. That's what you'd think. They sue a company called Autel who made a diagnostic tool. You know what they're suing them for? They had to break DRM to get the list of Ford car parts for this car that they used in building their tool. So Ford takes them to court, tries to make them shut down their diagnostics. I swear to God, these suits a list. are- They're um, saying, we own this list. You can't use it. They're coming for our basic rights. If you can't even print a list of parts that correspond to something, they're coming for your basic freedoms. That's freedom of speech. This Absolutely. is the stuff that America's it's, built on. Well, we're going to have to take down Ford. We're going to have to take down Tesla. We're going to have to take down all these digital DRM, fake American- suits. Well, and this connects to what I was telling you the other day when we were fixing cars, which is that both the Republicans and the Democrats, to different degrees, are completely accountable to this ad hoc and amorphous business community, quote unquote, that uses the threat of a capital strike, which is the withdrawal of investment resources from the American economy, as a way of extracting demands from whoever's in power. The whole damn game is slanted from the start. You know, they got pro-business people in every administration telling them that if they cut taxes, it's going to increase this abstract thing called business confidence, which actually just corresponds to business people not actively sabotaging the economy. This is what I've been saying. You know, when you first started saying that, I thought maybe you'd gone a little socialist, a little communist or something. But the more I'm seeing about what these companies are up to, the more I'm starting to think there's a lot of sense in what you're saying, even if it is a little bit commie. All these politicians, they're keynotes, conservatives in name only. I'm a real conservative. I look at the history. I look at our inheritance from our ancestors, what they worked and strive for for all of us. They wanted freedom, dignity, equality, always pushing further and better and yeah damn right i'll say it i'm a conservative in black lives matter and that's the kind of stuff you get when you come to fix cars in my garage oh hell yeah brother you want to watch some uh, sports absolutely second favorite thing behind uh the car fixing fixing cars yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah god bless him for taking that knee eh makes me proud to be a sports fan and an american yeah it's like it made the games even better well and again it's the owners against basically everyone else if you pop the lid on the damn thing pop the car open and take a peek it's inside the suits want us to not open the hoods of our cars, because if we get this idea, we know our way around the damn thing, we can tinker with it ourselves. Uh, maybe we're going to pop the lid open on politics and start tinkering there, too. They know how the bread's buttered. I tell you, these guys are sons of bitches. I've got an experience with DRM, too, that's connected to some of my most fundamental political concerns. It's very, like, personal to me, which is... It really bothers me the way that our society treats books online and the way that we treat libraries online. And DRM is like the way that this functions. Like, for example, if I get a book from a store, like a physical book from the store, I can, when I'm not reading it, be like, oh, Aaron wants to read this. Here, here you go, Aaron. I'll get it back from you later. Yeah. And that process of interpersonal social lending 
and the way that lending creates a type of abundance, the way that we can all have access to one book, all of us can have turns reading a book. We don't need to produce all these different books. Like that dynamic is close to my heart. And when I really care about a book, I always try to like get my friends to read it. I try to lend them my copy and stuff. But if I buy a digital book, I pay the same price that I'd pay for a physical book. And then when I'm done reading it, Amazon or whoever else has put this repressive locking DRM on it where I can't hand it off to someone temporarily. I can't pass it around. That social aspect of books is taken away. Imagine if they took real books and made it so that they're like tied to your DNA. And if anyone else grabs the book, it like burns <laughs> their skin or something to like prevent sharing in that same way. It's actually like more like just what you're saying. It's more restrictive than the physical book because their argument is always, oh, digital is so, like if you can just copy it endlessly, then we won't make any money. So we have to restrict it, but they're making it actually more restricted than what a physical book would be. Yeah, it's like if physical books had like a lock on the front of them where you had to enter your personal ID code to open it and it would check whether or not you had unlocked it in your like library and you're like, oh, sorry, you know, retinal scan. (laughs) Yeah, just a quick retinal scan. When you try to pick up a book, it'll decide whether or not you can open it based on whether or not you've paid the appropriate amount of money through the one corporation. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really fucked up. And then so the response to that, that I think is rational, is like, okay, how do we break the locks on these books so we can share the information with our friends as is our right? And it's not even necessarily like, oh, I'm going to break the lock on this book and then pass it on to the whole world. I'm really just talking about immediate people that are around you that you know, like, it's really devastating to lose that for a business model that is centralizing wealth in the hands of a very small group of people at the expense of artists at the same time. So at its best, DRM is supposed to be helping artists to ensure that they can get paid and get their stuff. But DRM is made for publishers by publishers. The most prominent example of book DRM is through Amazon, the corporation financing the richest person in history. Like DRM is not on our side. For example, a library, a lending institution that actually exists like in a community They have the ability, the technological capacity, if you gave them the legal stroke of the pen, to distribute all books to readers in a way that is above board, is a friendly, like one of the features of your local library, you can log on and they have digital copies of every book because why wouldn't they? Like why wouldn't a library be able to have a digital copy of every book when these things are infinitely replicable? And the purpose of the library is to distribute information in books in exactly that way without technology. It's a perfect continuity between them. But instead, what we have is a system where we (laughs) charge libraries like obscenely high above normal rates for books and we limit the amount of them they can lend out at the same time. And they expire. The ones that people take out? The libraries, a lot of the times now, purchase licenses to books. So it'll be like, you can lend out five copies of this book at a time for five years. And then you need to repurchase a new license again. So technology has moved in the opposite direction towards more accessibility, more radical accessibility, more of the spirit of the library coming to life and being realized But the response from the corporations that control all of the intellectual property in the world, and by extension through the threat of capital strike, control the laws of the nations of the world in relation to intellectual property, 
have manufactured a situation where the increased replicability of information is being used as a way to turn everything into limited licenses to more heavily monetize and limit every aspect of things. Now it's not enough for a library to simply receive a book as a donation. Oh, perfect. Now I can pass wherever this book came from. I can pass it on to anyone who wants it. Not anymore. You have to always go to the same corporations. They set all the rules of the game because it's their shit. Intellectual property is the realm where they're king. The things that they've taken from artists belong to them and they're the boss of it and they can boss libraries around and they can deny humanity access to information. Hey, hey oh, kid. Hey, where am I? Change camp. Looks like you did something naughty, didn't you? Uh, I want to go back home to my grandpa. <laughs> uh, back home. So naive. You got a lot of changing to do before you're going to see anybody in your family again. I thought people weren't supposed to change. Why is this a change camp? You're misunderstanding. Our, the entire society is built on the premise of not changing. The entire society is built on the premise of not changing the society from the perfect state that it's in. <laughs> if you change yourself away from the perfect state, then you make yourself imperfect. And then, yes, we do have have to send you to change camp to change you back to perfection god it's like i've explained this every single time but shouldn't you guys have unity of between means and ends that's naive that will never work well that's just one of the many thoughts we're gonna have to get out of your head algorithm here says you suggested the lack of private life was creating distance between grandpas and grandkids because what if in a situation like this that happened. Mm. It's really different. I don't see how. People are always talking about how smart the algorithm is. Even people who don't like the algorithm talk about how smart it is and how perfectly it guesses things. How come it can't tell that I was doing a thought experiment? Oh, the algorithm knows you were doing a thought experiment. The algorithm just doesn't care. But like, as a thought experiment, wouldn't it be wrong to send grandkids to re-education camps for having thought experiments related to information monopolies in their society and surveillance in their society? That's the kind of thought that if you weren't already at change camp, the tubes would be revving up right now, just you given that kind of a thought experiment. No, but it's just an innocent what if. Look, what you have to understand is that thought experiments sometimes aren't just thought experiments. They impact the real world and they impact how people see things. You proposing all these thought experiments can do a lot of damage. But I thought our society treasured thought experiments as means of coming to complex moral conclusions like the Sam Harris at the mall. No, 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 you're misunderstanding. Those are thought experiments that uphold current power structures. You're talking about thought experiments that deconstruct current power structures. There's a difference. Oh, jeez. <laughs> what was I thinking? That distinction makes perfect sense. I'm totally willing to comply with it. Good, that's good. May I'm I starting to see some go change. Home to my grandfather? Ooh, no, no, no. If there's a progress bar, I'd say you just ticked up to 0.1, maybe 0.04%. 0.4%. And I've been here for quickly on my pocket calculator. I'm sorry, I said 0 0.04. Oh. Okay. I guess I don't really have a free choice whether or not to obey you based on the legal structures of our society, right? No, no, absolutely not. And also, I'm a grown man. I'm a guard. I have weapons. You're a small boy, a grandkid. And I also have backup if you're turned out to be stronger than you look or something. But I mean, you know, all of that aside, like, ultimately, there's a law that uses you like a puppet. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I misheard what you asked. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Okay, just wanted that clarity. Not for the purposes of any thought experiments, of course. But. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with pointing out that our society makes puppets of us all. There's just something wrong with implying there might be something wrong with it. Oh, oh, or like suggesting an alternative or a way to change it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, yeah. You know what? This camp's going to be good for me. I, I think I can find ways to apply my knowledge within the power structure. That's great. You know, you're a quick study. I'm bringing you up to 0.15%. Oh, I just got a big dopamine hit. That was like a big notification. It's like having 200 praising comments. Yeah, minor praise from people in positions of massive authority over you will do that. You start to get a skewed view of how important what we say is, or a non-skewed view, I should say. Well, I mean, I guess our bio-survival instincts forged in the developmental wild nature that our consciousness arose in historically, you know, that sort of dopamine signal network could be effectively used to remember where berries are, but it's now instead being used by me to learn that I need to be complicit in power structure. So that's cool. You know what? I'm learning a lot at this camp. Yeah, so do you want to head over to the orientation area? Or we could drag you there kicking and screaming if you're feeling resistant. No, no, no. I'm a puppet of the law. I'm a puppet of the law. Let's go. The law has reached its hand up inside my puppet strings, and here I walk. Ah, that's a good little grandkid. This is like Thunderbirds, 1960. Uh, You know, there's still hope for you getting back to your grandpa while he's still alive. Oh, there's something... I'm happy to hear that, but I, I gotta say there's something really satisfying about just letting the strings do the walking, if you know what I mean. It's just an evasion of responsibility. You can just follow orders. It's nice. Yeah, I call it a state of allowing. Just allowing what is to be. So be it, you know? Kind of just a a state of letting, surrender to what is. It's beautiful. Well, this is great. I can't wait to change. I mean, away from changed, of course, to the original lost state, which was perfect. And so that disobedient grandkid soon realized on which side the bread was buttered. And in no time at all, he was doing thought experiments in favor of mass surveillance. The end. Okay, I've got a really dense question here. We're running out of time here. I want to try to jam as much as we can in. How do you feel about the attention industrial complex and its consequences for digitally feral millennials and Zoomers who are raised on a diet of highly manipulated dopamine signals? So I think that I don't like the premise, and we kind of got to this a little before. I think that the stuff on dopamine is not well cited and not replicable, that it's a story technologists tell themselves about what they're doing that is not true. In the same way that like the story about testosterone being at the root of the great financial crisis, I don't know if you remember this, there was this whole thing where traders were like, oh, well, I couldn't help myself because of my testosterone because I have the competitor's edge and the market selects for people who have high levels of tea. And that's why I did billions of dollars, trillions of dollars of fraud with complex financial derivatives. And that's why I was on Ashley Madison. Yeah, that's why I was on (laughs) Ashley Madison. Well, it's like, this is the foundation of all evolutionary psychology. Honey, it's not my fault. I fucked my grad students. It's the bonobos. Like I found an animal that acts the way that I have been acting and want to be let off the hook for. And I am just going to ascribe all of my conduct to my evolutionary origins. You know, see also Jordan Peterson and his lobsters, right? But they never commit to the incest is conflict resolution that the bonobos do. That's so so hypocritical. And there's a great Canadian scholar (laughs) named Anne Dagg, who was Harold Ennis's daughter, who wrote an amazing book about this called Love of Shopping is Not a Gene and who just got the Order of Canada. And she is just brilliant. And you should read her stuff. She's so good on this. But anyway, I think that 
media has been manipulative for a very long time. It is true that there are often unexploited soft spots in our attentional defenses, but I don't think that they're enduring. And I look at, like, say, the long sweep of advertising. And if you go, you know, around a city that's been in existence for a century or two, and you go to the old warehouse district, you'll see the ghost ads fading from the bricks on the side of the building. You know, use pond soap, five cents, it will make you clean, right? And like at some point, this was selling soap. And today, the ad is more like, you know, Axe body spray will make you a love god, use Axe. And the reason we got there was because of this kind of limbic warfare where they find a thing that makes you vulnerable, that sounds like a good pitch, and maybe it has the characteristics of something that is a reliable signal, and so you get mixed up, you get confused. The way that, you know, Upworthy headlines were at one point very convincing because they really sounded like people who were very enthusiastic, you know, 11 ducks that will amaze you and a 12th that will surprise you, you know, and for 15 seconds there, we were all clicking Upworthy headlines and then we got inured to them and we walked away from them. They're just a joke now. And it's true that kids don't have the same defenses that adults have. You know, speaking as the father of a 12-year-old who's very online, they have to learn that stuff. And you would hope that they would have a safe environment to do so. You know, I think of the pre-Reagan era when kids' TV had real limits on the advertising. Or in some places like in New Zealand, there are grocery stores that are mandated to have checkout aisles that don't have things at kids' eye height that they'll nag their parents for. And how that allows children to have a low stakes entry into this environment that we've built where competition to get people's attention has created a pretty sophisticated attentional system. But remember that getting people's attention and holding it is not merely the project of advertising. It is the hard problem of all political work and of religion and of like philosophy and of art. You know, if you took the commerce out, we would still have a highly developed cultural practice of trying to get and retain one another's attention. And we would still be in that circumstance. So I think, again, like, let's not give the tech industry credit, or at least not blind credit, for being as good at their job as they claim to be. Like, if they really can manipulate us, where is the peer-reviewed data on it, right? Why is it all either sales literature or very, very thin research, like um, there was the Facebook study where they non-consensually subjected 20 million people to messages encouraging them to vote, and then they measured the response and they did encourage a couple hundred thousand people more to vote than they expected, which in a close race makes a big difference, but it was less than half of a percent. And, you know, a less than half a percent effect size on the first time you try an intervention is not the end of free will, right? It just means you kind of tricked people. You know, when Ethan Zuckerman made the first banner ad, he had like a 42% click-through rate because people had never seen a banner ad. They were like, what's this? I'll click on it. But, you know, the rate fell pretty hard and pretty fast to the point now where it's like way less than 1%. So you think that to the degree that, like, for example, Facebook can influence elections over time, it's just going to become a more and more ridiculous premise that Mark Zuckerberg is going to sit down with the Democratic Party and be like, if you don't give me 50 million, the other guys are going to win. I mean, I think he can do it by like having a monopoly, right? Like he just gets to decide what you see. You know, like that makes a huge difference, right? Like censorship, which, you know, is one of the things we worry about with monopolies, especially communications monopolies. Censorship is like super effective at changing the way that people behave, right? <laughs> they just end up in ignorance, you know? Like 
if you want a bunch of teenagers to impregnate one another, don't tell them where babies come from. But it's not mind control, right? It's just control over the information sphere, which is why I think we need pluralism in our online world. Why we, instead of trying to turn Facebook into a regulated monopoly and then wisely steering it, we need to make Facebook small enough that doesn't have that kind of dominance over our information space where it's not, it's just not significant. So the real issue here is that Mark Zuckerberg is singularly in charge of the screen that everyone's looking at all the time. It's not that he's got a little team of specialists who are trying to figure out how to make you more addicted. Yeah. I mean, he does have that team. It's just that like, I don't believe that, you know, like the lesson I take away from the voter study is twofold, right? The first is Facebook ran a non-consensual human behavior experiment on 20 million people. Well, that's fine. They shouldn't be running a lemonade stand, right? (laughs) The other is it got less than half a percent success and they trumpeted it as though they had invented a mind control ray, which tells me that they're a bunch of delusional goons, right? So they're like delusional goons with like a howling void where their moral center should be. And, you know, that's a good reason to hate Facebook. (laughs) I, I agree. Well, before we let you go here, this was an awesome discussion. I wanted to ask, because you're a science fiction writer, how science fiction fits into this developing and bizarre, multifaceted political situation in tech. Well, I, I think that fiction overall is a kind of intuition pump. It's a way to run a thought experiment that helps you anticipate some future experience and think about how you will act if that comes about. And I think that science fiction is like not an unalloyed good in that regard. You know, being pulp fiction, which is to say fiction where the plot is the most important thing, science fiction has really put its emphasis on things like man against nature and man against man, and sometimes man against nature against man, where like the tsunami blows your house down, your neighbors come over to eat you. And I think that like the actual lived experience of disasters, as expressed in really amazing books like Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell is that crises are when the background hum of petty grievance stops. And in the ringing silence that you get afterwards, you realize how much reason you have for solidarity with your neighbors, even if you've harbored some grudge. And it's when people pull together and help each other. And the intuition pump that tells you that when the crisis comes, your neighbor is coming over with a shotgun makes you less likely to want to go over to their house with a covered dish. But I think that there is a lot of science fiction that is utopian, not in the sense of being a world where nothing goes wrong. That's just stupid. You know, engineers who think nothing will ever go wrong don't make good machines. They make the Titanic and then don't put any lifeboats on it, you know. But it's the idea that when things go wrong, we can fix them. Like that is a strain in science fiction that's sometimes contemptuously talked about as, you know, the competent man story and what have you. But tales of the human race figuring out how to make big, complicated, high stakes things working are both true to life, you know, as we can tell, because here we are in this big high stakes world, and we're not all dead six times of, of food poisoning, let alone any of the other many ways that people die in their millions and billions. But they're also inspiring. They also give us the intuition that tells us we can make big, complicated, amazing things that work. And, you know, I just, I just wrote library socialism into a novel I'm working on. So, you know, you guys, I think, have that idea in the way that you conduct your own affairs. Absolutely. And also, holy shit, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> I really liked, what was the title of the, when you covered library socialism on Boing Boing, the phrase, a 
what was it luxuriating a, a, a fully automated a, luxury communism no it was a, it was a, a vision of circulating abundance something that's like it. that circulating and abundance. Was just, that's right. what a beautiful combination of words yeah one last thing if i can press you here and this is going to be the toughest question of the whole thing we advocate for creating a world library digital library for the entire planet we also advocate for renaming it the pirate bay and declaring it a world heritage site i was wondering if you could advocate for that with us uh, okay. You know, the Pirate Bay domain just sold to some grifter who wants to put ads on it for like $100,000. But sure, I'm with you. Well, we should seize it. It definitely Excellent. belongs to the people. File a uniform <laughs> domain resolution protocol claim with the World Intellectual Property Organization and see how you go. Guys, I really got to run. It's been really amazing. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. Oh, totally. This has been an awesome chat. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Special breaking news report. A coding whiz kid hacker type calling himself Tractor Master has seized control of the world's digital tractors to prevent the harvesting of grain. Why would a whiz kid stoop to such lows? The answer may lie in a manifesto published by this Tractor Master where they state that after listening to the Cory Doctorow episode of the Seriously Wrong podcast, they became convinced that something had to be done. The manifesto also lists four demands. First, that all monopolies be broken up with special emphasis on tech and information monopolies. Second, that all DRM laws be eliminated immediately. Third, that all people be guaranteed a legal right to privacy, including digital privacy. And four, a guaranteed right to repair one's own products or life implements. Dangerous demands from a deranged whiz kid turned terrorist. Tractor Master has installed malware on 58% of global tractors and also taken over the operating systems of up to 36% of fridges. Now these fridges and tractors are going to be prevented from distributing or producing food until they enter Tractor Master's proprietary unlock code. And of course, they won't give that unlock code over until their demands are met. And today we've got one of the co-hosts of the Seriously Wrong podcast here, Aaron. This radical intellectual property violating and food limiting starvation causing monster is clearly your creation. He gave credit to you for this idea to do this and your episode that you released. What do you have to say for yourself? First of all, I want to say thank you for having me on, giving me a chance to explain this. I know it doesn't look good. But I do want to push back a little bit because I think that the framework that says that we're to blame for this is actually not the right way to look at this. When Tractor Master, before they pulled this little stunt, first created their software that allowed people to repair their tractors that they were unable to repair before because of the proprietary software that the tractor manufacturers put into it, people celebrated Tractor Master. They said they're allowing food to be produced for people all around the world. But the only reason that happened is because of what the tractor manufacturers did in the first place. They created the need for an alternate tractor code, and that created the choke point where Tractor Master was able to insert their software into all these tractors. And so I say, instead of pointing the finger at us, point the finger at the tractor manufacturers. I do agree with their list of demands. I think they're good demands. I hope that governments implement these demands, but not like this. So you don't condemn their demands? 
I can't in good conscience, no. This person is doing something horrible, and they're saying that they were directly inspired by you. How could you possibly have a clear conscience? You know, I just try to have good emotional boundaries, I guess. Like, I know what I said, and I can't be responsible for how everybody interprets it all the time, right? Especially in a way like this. It's just so clearly counter to the general vibe of our show and other things that we've stated, like being against holding food hostage. But you had a sketch on your show where all of this that's happening right now happened. How do you defend that? Well, if something's happening in a sketch on our show, a lot of the time that means we don't want it to happen. So that's how I defend it. Well, you should have clarified it to Tractor Master because he is holding the entire world's food supply hostage based on your inspiration. What do you have to say for yourself? Satire requires a clarity of purpose. And if we've ever been deficient on that, I'm open to that. Like maybe we weren't always perfect, but I think we're pretty good usually. A complete denial and evasion of responsibility from a very irresponsible person. Back to you. Denial of responsibility is right. It seems that this tactic of blaming the tractor manufacturers, who are clearly the victims in this situation, has become something of a party line amongst those responsible for this horrible terrorist. After refusing multiple requests for comments, we had one of our reporters camp out outside Cory Doctorow's home to force him to answer some questions. Oh, Mr. Doctorow, Mr. Doctorow, please. Experts say that with each passing hour that tractors are not returned to function, tens of thousands more people will die in the coming years. We need your response to this, please, on a scale of 90 to 100. How ecstatically happy are you about these deaths, given that they further your political goals, what people have been calling the Cory Doctorow program? Oh, come on, that's a ridiculous question. Nobody wants people to starve to death. Listen, the day that the tractor manufacturers decided that they would preserve their grift in getting a couple extra shekels from people who needed their tractors fixed by designing tractors that were supposed to be brickable in the field, designing tractors that treated the farmers who owned them as their adversaries, this was inevitable. Blaming me for pointing that out is garbage. Come on. The real culprits here are the people who made those design decisions, not the people who told them that they should. Just one more question, please, Mr. Doctorow. Some have suggested that the naming of yourself in this manifesto as a so-called inspiration was actually an act of subterfuge, misdirection, and that you are, in fact, the whiz kid terrorist tractor master yourself. How do you respond to these accusations? I am definitely not a terrorist. And WizKid, what is this, 1947? If you want to find someone who'll call himself a WizKid, you're going to need a time machine or at least someone who's 40 years older than me. These kinds of questions show exactly why Rebel Media should have never been made Canada's national broadcaster. Grow up. There you have it. An unsatisfying answer from a dangerous man. After the break, Tractor Master's industrial sabotage is meaning that thousands may starve. What does it mean for your stock portfolio? Stay tuned. Dang, well, that was a great conversation. Really interesting stuff and effective communication on some niche but very urgent topics. And I really appreciate that he put library socialism in his next book. I'm super excited about that. Yeah, that's ridiculously (laughs) cool. cool. (laughs) I can't wait to read it.
But yeah, just like overall, I feel like my understanding on a lot of these topics has been deepened. It really makes me think of how great it would be to have more activism-inspired and integrated science fiction in the world. And what a socially useful, but also entertaining and joyful, thriving part of the sociocultural infrastructure towards political change. This like political or rights-aware science fiction that deals with these issues is so like valuable to society in a way that hearing him talk about it just really underlines like things that I value that I didn't always have the language to say. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of the usefulness of fiction in describing either worlds that we want to be in or worlds that we don't want to be in or ways to overcome problems that are similar to the problems we're facing now, but different enough that maybe like it gets past some of the defenses of something that's set in a world that's more exactly like ours that like speculative fiction sci-fi and fantasy stuff has all the advantages of like any kind of fiction where you can tell morality plays or stories of people acting in certain ways or doing certain things to help inspire values or to demonstrate complex principles through action rather than through trying to describe them directly but the added layer of like being able to, you know, put in laser guns or all kinds of technologies or magic or things like that also allows for some creative ways to do that in an even more effective way sometimes. The way that fiction relates to intuition pumps really resonated with me in that like you can science fiction can help us teach ourselves ways to think about things. So you can approach these political topics in a way where instead of like a political manifesto, you're like, these are my demands, you know, this and this and this and this, and then everything will be good. Like you said, by seeing the logic of these scenarios unfold in a fictional setting can sometimes help people to recognize truths that wouldn't seem as plain if they were just written out and described, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's really cool. And I guess the natural thing from that, if we're going to have a call to action here, I support, to all of our science fiction writers in the audience, I support your habit of science fiction. I hope you keep it up. It's really, really valuable. And people who enjoy writing science fiction and can't find the time for it, I'm going to challenge you right now. Can you make some time for it in the spirit of making a better world? Can you push more of your joyful genius through the pain tube of writing and revisions? I believe in you. There's a thing that happens every year called NaNoWriMo. During the month of November, people are challenged to write, I think it's 50,000 words, which is like 1,500 words a day or something like wild. It's The point of the exercise is to encourage people to get past their internal critic who's like keeping you from writing and just like force yourself to shoot out all these words quickly during one month. And then at the end of November, you, have, you wrote something that was 50,000 words long. So if you're the kind of person who's having writer's block or thought about writing or just hasn't been able to do it, it might be good to participate in something like that. You can find some other people who are also doing it. You uh, encourage each other. There's content out there on th like it's a, there's a community around this event that might be helpful in motivating you to write. Just thought I'd mention it since it's it's going to be November soon. Yeah, I think like the number one piece of advice I've ever received around writing or producing anything. And I think NaNoWriMo really helps people hit this groove. The starting point for anything is just sort of like powering through and writing a draft. If you have something to start with, don't expect it to be perfect. Don't worry about what every sentence is going to look like or what the structure of the whole thing looks like. And like we can talk about the production process of our show and like <laughs> the times when we try to over plan versus the times where we just let it rip and then record something and then 
Yeah, Turns we can, out it's just as good. We can discuss a sketch for 45 minutes sometimes, or like two hours sometimes, or sometimes <laughs> like 15 minutes. And you know, sometimes the two hours is worth it, and we really talk through some stuff, and it, it turns out great. But sometimes those sketches with zero prep are just as good. And sometimes doing a sketch a little bit wrong the first time and then recording some drop-ins, like that's also chill. And with writing, it's even easier to edit afterwards. So really, just go for it. Yeah, get that first draft out, friends, social fiction, (laughs) social fiction, science fiction, social fiction, authors, and friends of the show, audience members. (laughs) I like that term, social fiction. Like there's anti-social and pro-social fiction. Yeah, totally. Well, also, I'll just randomly throw out another recommendation. Cory Doctorow has actually written a book for people who create content in the internet age called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free that has further advice about what the process is like of creating in the digital age. So check that out if you can. It's free on his website along with his other stuff. Yeah, and thank you for listening, audience member. Yeah, and yeah, and thanks again to Cory for coming on the show. Super, super fun. Hey, and thanks for doing your part, Aaron. Oh, you're welcome, and thank thank you for also doing your part. Thank you. That's that's nice. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> hey, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Seriously. Seriously. Boys are stupid. Seriously. Wrong. 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 Seriously. Are they wrong? I think they're wrong 100. percent Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're wrong. Seriously. They're always wrong. That is absolute wrong. Is so wrong. Wrong. Very nice words, but happens to be wrong. Seriously. 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 Wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Grandpa and Grandkid Shtick, The Next Generation. As we join Grandpa and Grandkid around the Christmas table in the year 2130. Uh, Grandpa, can you pass the grandparry, cranberry sauce? <laughs> Did you, you said grandparry sauce? That's funny. Yeah, I was just thinking about my grandpa, so the grandparry sauce, yeah. You could call me grandpa. I love cranberry so much. <laughs> just, no, yes, here, here you go. Nothing's too good for my grandkid at the Christmas table. Does that mean you'll tell me my favorite story again? The story of how our society came to be how it is? <laughs> you promised me you wouldn't ask that. Well, I... It's Christmas. And you finished your NaNoWriMo book. 50,000 beautiful words of social fiction. It's quite an accomplishment for a boy. Oh, thanks. I'm going to take your notes to do a second draft. So when I was a little grandkid about your age, I got sent to change camp because we lived in a society that in the year 2020 said that they'd perfected the human condition. And in fact, there'd be no social change. Everyone's perfected. Society's perfected. We can only do what we're doing except more so. So instead of actually counting up to the year 2070, we just considered it the 50th part of 2020. Oh, wow. There's a bunch of weird assumptions around this. It didn't really make sense. My grandpa himself was terrified. I actually just had a little innocent thought experiment about what could possibly be and the algorithm sent a tube after you right yes it sent a tube out yes you spoiled it but yes you love this story don't you yeah i know every beat but yeah so everyone at the time thought oh it's this algorithm you know the algorithm is all listening and all knowing and stuff but it made mistakes all the time and ultimately it was enforced by the power of law it was something that people were doing to each other it wasn't some big mysterious machine or something yeah and everything was under corporate 
corporate monopolies, right? Yeah, they said that, oh, it's a regulated monopoly, so it's okay. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there is no such thing as an appropriate monopoly on information, communications networks, public squares, and stuff like that. I mean, I think part of it really, honestly, is a lot of liberals just love the idea of being able to kick someone like Felix Bones off that they didn't think critically about. If an organization controls the public square and has control of what information people have access to and can sell off exposure to information in a monopolized network, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for totalitarianism, sort of the type of totalitarianism that Felix Bones talked about, even though he's wrong on most of the details. You know, there's a real emotional truth behind what he was saying there. But I think it all changed when there's these two academics. They're always fighting. And that they sent the hug robots after the tractor master, right? Wait, wait, that's, that's not got too far ahead. So they right, had sorry. this big fight between them in front of a whole audience. It's so embarrassing. About whether smart houses are checkmate for humanity on one hand or a couple moves away to checkmate and very close for humanity they're fighting what a silly little disagreement yeah, and they were talking about each other's mothers and stuff it was like really heated but yeah on the news they saw that tractor master had taken control of the world's tractors and fridges and there was a real existential threat and in that crisis moment what they ended up doing was being able to see each other's humanity and, and work together towards shared ends. They wow. asked themselves the question, you know, this is a maniac. This is a maniac who's been inspired by a podcast, a podcast that was thankfully later made illegal. Oh, thank God. But yeah, they saw this tractor master was a unique threat to human flourishing and they came together, looked past their petty differences and united in a strategy of working to track him first with metadata and then send a series of unmanned aerial drones after him to give him some reassuring hugs to reconnect him to the community, say things like, you're valued, your voice is welcome, there's space for you in our society. If you go through the appropriate channels for this type of thing, there's means to resolve the issues that you have. There's no brick walls to hit. There's always going to be a democratic process that's willing to listen and work to implement, or at the very least work towards a common understanding. You know, the sweet whispers of the unmanned aerial drones. I'm glad I have you to say those things to me, Grandpa, but if I didn't, I wouldn't mind hearing it from a drone either. Well, yeah, and saying those things is great, but what ultimately really happened there was how effectively this intervention worked created a revolutionary moment in society where people saw that the things that they assumed to be true might not be true. I remember some of the camp counselors, some of the fiercest defenders of this system, having seen on the television the beauty of the two academics coming together over their petty differences to reach out and touch the humanity within Tractor Master, to make Tractor Master someone who's part of the team, to realize he doesn't have to be a villain, that there's room for everyone to be a hero in this society instead waves of reforms happen and actually that kids including myself who were being disciplined for free thought were brought on as a free thought council to developing the system so i was one of the kids who actually got to brainstorm how we could make a better society because ironically i was being punished so it was pretty neat i'm just glad that society is the way it is now and not the way it was before it sounds really bad when you had to pretend everything was perfect all the time instead of understanding that perfection is a projected ideal and it's something we can strive towards and always try to make things better but we understand that you know stuff's always going to go wrong and we're going to have to work together to fix it and that's what being in a society together is all about Right, Grandpa? Absolutely, yeah. And building everyone up. Be part of the conversation. 
making sure that when people speak, they're listened to, that there's mechanisms for not just the free speech and being able to say what you think, but having what you say matter, having institutions that can take what people say and transform that into social policy. That's what we've achieved here in this beautiful library socialist future. Oh, and we almost forgot. I think one of the other best things we achieved is how close of a relationship you and I have compared to your relationship with your grandpa, which I understand because of the whole thing with the algorithm and the, it was pretty strained for a while there and you two kind of never got over it. Not fully anyway, but we, we have a great relationship. Yeah, that's right. I'm so happy to know that you can tell me anything that you're thinking, that we've got this private space where we can really know each other and be ourselves and learn and grow. Exactly. That space is so important. And when it became a legally protected constitutional right, along with all of the other demands of Tractor Master, who was later elected democratically as president. Right, because society started to understand forgiveness. Exactly. Well, I mean, his campaign slogan, can you ever forgive me, pulled huge in the suburbs. Who knew? And I, all the great ideas probably helped too. But yeah, he did the right thing. Uh, both the academics did the right thing. Uh, my, the guy in the earlier other sketches did the right thing too it wasn't perfect though i mean there's lots of problems but we came together and were able to solve them when we did and and honestly grandkid if i can just be a little vulnerable it's uh knowing on what i missed out on with my grandpa and that the society had left such wounds on the space between us that wasn't able to heal before he passed it it's it's probably my biggest regret Uh, you know it it wasn't your fault and you did the best you could At least you two had that beautiful moment on his deathbed where you forgave each other. Yeah, I suppose that will have to be good enough. Merry Christmas, grandkid. Merry Christmas, grandpa. You mind if I smoke in here, kid? It's incredible, this new tobacco. It's not addictive and it's not bad for you. You can smoke as much as you want, even if you're a kid. You want one? Uh, It's not unhealthy. No, thanks, grandpa. I just don't want to pick up the habit. Yeah, to each their own. I was just saying, it's not addictive and it's not unhealthy, so even a kid could smoke it. Do you want some more mashed potatoes, gravy? Oh, you know my weak spot. Grandpa loves mashed potatoes and pass that over here. Oh, here you go. This is what it's like to really know someone. I love you, grandkid. I love you too. 